Hello, and welcome to Around the Table, a podcast about food stories from science to everyday life. Anders Monk, welcome to Bite Sized Experts. Thank you, Stanley. Anders, uh, can you say something about yourself and how you got interested in Nordic cuisine? Because you know, you've written some things about this. Yeah, well, so a bit about myself first. I'm an uh, ethnologist by training, but I have sort of turned computer scientist uh, during the last uh, uh, 10 to 15 years. So. Um, I'm a researcher in the field somewhere between uh, being interested in cultural phenomena in Europe, but uh, with the added flavor that I use computational methods to study patterns in large amounts of data. But I actually first got interested in the Nordic movement, uh, the Nordic cuisine movement, when I was uh, writing my master thesis. That's 16, 15 years ago now, um, which was on the French, um, the French notion of, of terroir and how terroir is inscribed in the production of French wine. And, and at the same time, while I was doing that fieldwork in France, uh, back in my native Copenhagen, uh, there was a, a restaurant opening called Noma, which is now has now become famous. Uh, at the time, it was known as the colloquially known as the seal fucker, if I'm allowed to say that in a podcast. Um, uh, that was uh, that was sort of the attitude towards it. It was basically the first sort of idea that we could have a, um, a gastronomy based uh, entirely on local ingredients found in the Nordic region. And that really caught my attention because that was the first time I heard someone seriously uh, deploying the language of terroir that I knew from my French wine peasants, but now in a Danish context. So that really intrigued me. That was sort of my first... Uh, encounter with it and i've been interested in it in it ever since uh, and now i'm sort of now i'm studying how it, it spreads uh, online how it's become a global uh, phenomena um how it's become one of the the sort of the influences on the gastronomic uh, scene in the last uh, I, I guess we can say last 10 years actually can you tell me how does new nordic cuisine differ from an old nordic cuisine yeah, that's an interesting question. So it's not that there was not a gastronomic movement uh, in Scandinavia prior to uh, the manifesto for a new Nordic cuisine. And I think that the manifesto is is a good place to start. So in 2004, a bunch of Nordic chefs uh, came together to, to write a manifesto, which was, well, partly about what I just said, right, that we, we needed a terroir-based gastronomy in Scandinavia, but they were also claiming that this terroir-based gastronomy was going to fix a lot of other things, right? It was going to fix rural development or help rural development. It was going to help tourism. It was going to fix public health. It was going to have educational purpose. It was going to provide a sense of identity to the region and, and so forth. So one of the ways in which it differs is that it's a sort of a wider social 
social political project rather than simply a, a gastronomic or a culinary project. I guess similar to other movements, like if you see, for example, what Jamie Oliver has done over the last 20 years, it's not, it's not unrelated. Um, but there's another way in which it, it differs, namely that um, the old Nordic gastronomy was based extensively around um, imported ingredients. So, for example, in Denmark, there's a big tradition for currying stuff or, you know, herring or meatballs or whatever it could be. Or in Sweden, there's a big tradition for using saffron um, in all the, uh, the pastries. Um, the new Nordic movement uh, had as an explicit, an explicit ambition and has as an explicit ambition to, to find or develop a locally... Uh, local ingredients, locally sourced ingredients uh, to replace that. Um, so if, if they're not able to find it or forage it, they will ferment it out of what they're able to find and forage in order to sort of fill the palate. Um, I guess that's the the two major differences between the old Nordic astronomy and the new one. Do you know what have been the tangible effects of this movement in the Nordic countries? Yeah, so... The very obvious tangible effect is that um, places like Copenhagen or Oslo or Stockholm or Gothenburg have now become uh, gastronomic destinations. Right? I guess um, I'm biased here, but I guess it's started in Copenhagen. Um, not only that people from around the world would come to visit, but also that uh, chefs from around the world would see Copenhagen as an attractive place to train and start up their restaurants. So it's made, made a huge impact on the restaurant scene, which, I mean, the fact that you have so much uh, foreign uh, capital coming in, in the sense that many people come travel here to, to eat, um, also means that the locals have uh, are now presented with a completely different scene. They're exposed to a much wider variety of uh, restaurant options. And I think in the last five years we have seen that sort of trickle down from um, very high-end culinary temples to a much broader variety of um, of restaurants that are actually affordable and that people will use on a sort of a on a weekly basis um, so that's one of the very I mean very tangible impacts uh, of course that also has has not gone effects on on uh, sectors like like tourism where um, places like Copenhagen, uh, Stockholm can uh, market themselves to the to the international tourists in new ways. Uh, so it has economic effects. Uh, I think it's also had a a cultural effect uh, in Scandinavia in the sense that food has become really the the new way to uh, create your own identity. Um, it's an identity marker. You have to be able to, you know, you should be able to whisk up an emulsion or do some fermentation or run your own sourdough production. Um, this is uh, more important than having the right watch or doing the right kind of sport. Or it's, it's become really a cultural marker, an identity marker. Uh, something that is associated with high cultural capital, and that's new in Scandinavia. Um, there's been large studies also on 
on the effects on public health. Um, I don't think there is a demonstrable effect on public health yet, but this is not my field of expertise. But at least um, it has been shown that um, that some of these ingredients, there was a you know a, a push uh, very early on in the movement to try and and see if you could replicate the results of the Mediterranean diet, but with uh, you know sea buckthorn instead of lemon, or with ramson instead of garlic and rapeseed oil instead of olive oil. So could you replace all the sort of the magic ingredients of the of the Mediterranean diet with uh, with the Nordic uh, replacements? Um, and I think that that has been partly successful. Uh, whether we we're seeing the big uh, sort of public health effects yet, or if those effects are also the result of people working out more and you know, the general shifts in attitude towards public health, I think that is still the, the jury is still out on that. But but there's definitely been effects. So um, personally, how healthy do you think it is? I'm I'm of the personal conviction that uh, taking an interest in what you eat is healthy, uh, <laughs> right? So I don't think it's that much about, um, you know, what's the calorie uh, or the protein or whatever makeup of the ingredients, but rather the fact, I think that what, what is healthy is that the average um, Dane has developed, uh, has started to take an interest in what they eat. And that generally means that they're willing to, uh, or many of them are willing to now uh, prioritize having fresh produce um, and in general when you when you eat uh, out of interest and maybe even out of a certain passion I think you tend to do it in a more balanced way um, and there might even be well, that's a personal opinion there might even be sort of more psychological effects of enjoying <laughs> eating rather than uh, eating out of compulsion or uh, to uh, alleviate stress or whatever, uh, it's become more of a um, a way to enjoy yourself, and I think that is that is healthy. Do you think there are lessons for the wider world in the uh, Nordic cuisine? Um, it would be cheeky to say that there would be lessons for the part of the world that are sort of already in, in a sense. The Nordic cuisine is modelled on. Um, know what, what is already going on in large parts of the remaining world right you could say that Scandinavia was a uh, almost a non-space in terms of terroir before this movement so in a way it's nonsensical to say that countries like France or Italy or uh, Spain would be able to learn something from from the Nordic example on the other hand there has been something refreshingly creative, which I think is also recognized by the fact that there are there were very little rules. It was almost like a sort of you know, like when Le Corbusier built his uh, city plans in the sixties and argued that we should you know we should take a bulldozer and level the historical city to be able to start from a from a fresh to have a fresh modern start and city planning. It's kind of, this happened naturally here, right? Because there was almost nothing, no tradition um, dictating how chefs were supposed to do things. And I think that created the space for innovation um, where things were possible that would not have been possible uh, in Paris or in Milan um, at the time. I think now the, my impression is, and that's also something I see in my, in my research, is that 
uh, new chefs in in France are actually looking looking to Scandinavia for new ideas. Um, and so the I guess it's it's debatable to what extent uh, you can create that uh, artificially that you know that open space for innovation. But at least you can. Maybe the lesson is that you should not necessarily look to the to the established places with a big tradition for the for food innovation. Uh, it has to happen sometimes outside of that uh, of of those uh, of those track dependencies that come with that. Hammers Monk, fantastic things, amazing things are happening in the Scandinavian countries with food. Thank you so much for for sharing your interest and knowledge. You're welcome. It's great talking to you. Table is a personal production of Dr. Tesbird and Professor Stanley Uliajak, who are anthropologists of food and nutrition and of household uncertainty and insecurity. The opinions and ideas expressed are solely those of the contributors and podcasters and do not reflect the opinions of any university body. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>